7 through 10. This can be found on page 1485 of your Pew Bible if you'd like to follow along. Dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God, and everyone who loves is born from God and knows God. The person who doesn't love does not know God because God is love. This is how the love of God is revealed to us. God sent his only son into the world so that we can live through him. This is love. It's not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as the sacrifice that deals with our sins. Amen. Thank you, Lori, very much. So are all of you looking forward to the year 2030? Anyone? Anyone. Okay, maybe not. 2030 is going to be an important year in the life of this church because in 2030 we will be celebrating the 150th anniversary of the founding of this church that you're in right now. So being good Methodists, we're going to organize a committee now so we're ready by 2030 for the celebration that we're going to have. This church has a rich tradition in the city of Seattle and I want to show you a picture of four different individuals that were instrumental in founding this church. Now, the four individuals you see here are the founding members of the very congregation you're in right now, back in 1880. And the thing I want to draw your attention to is the, the couple on the far left. The couple on the far left. Uh, that particular couple, they journeyed out here to the Seattle area to start a free Methodist movement. And as they began that movement, they started meeting in their own home. A group gathered there with them. And that's how free Methodism started here in the city of Seattle. There's a long story about how free Methodism got to the West Coast. Um, I'll, didn't, I didn't tell the 9 o'clock service, but I'll tell you. You, all, you okay with that? The deal is, is that when the, the main part of the United Methodist Church, which was now United Methodist, it used to be the Methodist Episcopal Church, almost all the churches that were started in here on the West Coast were started by the Methodist Episcopal Church South. The Methodist Episcopal Church split during the time of the Civil War into the North and the South, just like the country did. And the South uh, held on to slavery longer and, of course, some components of Jim Crow. Most of the churches on the West Coast were planted by the Emmy Church South, not the Emmy Church North. And free Methodists, who were fiercely abolitionists from day one against and opposed slavery, as a matter of fact, that's key to our beginning way back in 1860, they decided to launch a free Methodist movement here that really affirmed the equality of all human people and human beings. And that's how free Methodism came here. That's the part I did until 9 o'clock, so now you got something to lord over them, all right? But these two people on the left, lay people. They were not pastors. The free Methodist church didn't send a pastor here to start a free Methodist movement. This was a couple that came completely on their own, of their own initiative. They took action, came to Seattle to start a free Methodist movement. Once they kind of had critical mass meeting in their living room, then they contacted the free Methodist and said, please send a pastor. And that's who's on the right side of the picture. That's the Reverend John Glenn. He was the first pastor appointed to serve this church. Here's a picture of him uh, from that time. I'm going to have to get that hat. I, every time I see this picture, I have deep appreciation. It looks like he's wearing kind of a fez. So I'm thinking I might need that. So this is John Glenn, the founding pastor of our church. 
And so free Methodism started here in Seattle through his ministry that was started by lay people before he even came. Now the next picture I'm going to show you is a picture of a church building. And that's the church building that originally set where you are right now. That's the original church building. And the name of that church was not First Free Methodist Church. Its name was actually Second Free Methodist Church. Because this is the location of the Second Free Methodist Church. First Free Methodist Church was downtown on Pine Street. And after some time, the two congregations merged together into one church. And they decided to relocate to this location and call themselves First Free Methodist Church because after all, who wants to be second? That's how we came to be. So after almost 150 years, how do, how do churches last that long? Well, they do some of the basics right that's how they last that long. They do some of the basics right. And we're starting today a series of messages that's going to last about five weeks, including to today, including today, where we're going to be exploring the basics, the, the basics of our own Christian life, but more importantly, some of the basics of what this congregation is about. We're going to be looking over the next several weeks at our church's vision statement, which is to love people, connect to Jesus, serve the world. And over the next five weeks, you're going to hear from a variety of voices. You've already had 11 weeks of me preaching, so it's time to mix it up a little bit. And so next Sunday, we're going to hear from the Reverend Dr. Brian Lujioyo. Brian is the Dean of the School of Theology at Seattle Pacific University, and he's also an ordained Free Methodist elder. Looking forward to Brian coming and talking with you uh, about what it means for us to love people, to love people. And Brian usually comes to the bridge, so he's probably floating around here somewhere. He's wearing a Hawaiian shirt, so spot him after the church service and give him any suggestions for next week's sermon. I know he'll appreciate that, all right? Then, two weeks after that, we're going to hear from our very own pastor, Camille Pook. And Camille is right here in the front, so you wave your arms. That's two-dimensional Camille. That's three-dimensional Camille down here. And she's going to be talking with us about how to serve the world and some of the ministries we have as a church that we can all be engaged in in serving the world in which we live. So over these weeks, we're going to be talking about the basics. Love people, connect to Jesus, serve the world. Love people, connect to Jesus, serve the world. I want you to try that with me. Love people, connect to Jesus, serve the world. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. I'm going to give you kind of a brief, kind of a 36,000-foot look at those three things together to kind of get set for what you're going to be hearing over the next few weeks. So let's talk about love people first, which is really love for, the, the manifestation of love that happens in our own midst. Now, loving people is something that has multiple dimensions to it. There's this love for God, love for others or your neighbor, and even love for self. The passage that, that Brian is preaching on next week is Matthew chapter 22, where Jesus answers a question about what the greatest commandment is. And Jesus says that you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as your self. So it's interesting that when Jesus explains that commandment or that truth, he acknowledges a healthy love of self. That you're to love your neighbor as yourself. And so in many ways, the way in which you love yourself is a, kind of the bar that gets set for how you love 
neighbor. And I'm looking forward to hearing what Brian has to uh, share with all of you next week a little bit more in detail about that. But suffice to say that it's really a triad. It's God, your neighbors, and self. Those three all work together. And not only is there a healthy love for self that's important, but there's a healthy love within our community together that's important. One of the gifts that our church has that I've seen over the last 10 or 11 weeks that I've been here as the pastor is that there are some tight relationships in this church. There are people who've lived a lot of life together. And I'm hoping that everybody who comes to this congregation can find that same kind of connection about what it means to live life together. So there's not only a healthy love for self, there's a love that we have together as a church community that becomes very important for us to lift up and to celebrate. But our love is to go beyond that. Ultimately, loving people is about loving people that are not here yet. That are not here yet. And the best metaphor I've had shared with me years ago is this one. That the best kind of church is a church that has a lot of porches, it has a lot of doors, and it has a lot of windows. So there's lots of ways for people to be able to access or to come in to the life of the church. A church like this is important. There are too many churches in our world today that look like a penitentiary. Walls and fences and kind of communicate that we do our thing and you do your thing and we don't meet. And that's not the church we have and that's not the church we want to be. We want to be a church like this. Lots of porches, lots of doors, lots of windows, lots of ways for people from all different walks of life to find the love of God inside this particular church. Now, in order to do that, that's going to require us becoming a diverse congregation, a diverse congregation. When I first started here in July, and even before I started, I heard the same message from our church's leadership again and again, and it's that we needed more young people. Do you agree? Of course we need more young people. That would mean that making, help make the church more diverse. So right now we have age diversity that we need to add. It's no secret we have an aging congregation. So what does it mean for us to grow younger as a church? And how do we do that to become a more diverse population? But diversity means a lot of different things. It could be ethnic diversity, socioeconomic diversity, cultural diversity. We could go on and on talking about diversity. But let's be clear. Diversity is not the same thing as inclusion. In diversity, what we do is we count the people. How many different types of people we have, how many different ages we have, we count the people. In inclusion, the people count. I'm going to say that again. In diversity, we count the people. But in inclusion, the people count. So what that means in inclusivity is that we build a congregation where people from the, all of that diversity, cultural, racial, socioeconomic, age, that those people all have a voice at the table, that they all get to help lead, they all get to help participate, they all get to contribute, they all get to engage. So a lot of times human systems are created in a way that small, exclusive, small group of people run everything. And what we want to have is an, an inclusive church where our leadership is broadly based and we have a representation of all those voices at the table in helping our church be the congregation it can be. 
I want to turn your attention just to the text we read this morning from 1 John chapter 4. It says in verse 7 that love is from God. And then in verse 8 it said that God is love. And then in verse 9 it said that God sent. So imagine what it would be like when we talk about love for people or love people. What would it be like for God to love people but then to do nothing about it? What would that be? What would it mean for God to love people but then do absolutely nothing about it? We would then have a pretty sound critique of God's love, wouldn't we? That God loves maybe a name only. Or maybe that God experiences love just as a feeling, but it actually doesn't do anything. What does 1 John 4, 7 tell us? Love is from God. God is love. And in verse 9, God did what God sent. The love of God took action. It took action for the sake of all of us as human beings. That even in the midst of our own sinfulness, God acted for us. I think that's a truth we should pay attention to carefully. Because nowhere in the Bible is love for people talked about as a feeling or as an emotion. Love in the Bible is always spoken of as an action or a behavior, something that we do. And we're going to talk more this morning about what those actions might look like. But let's just hold that for now. That love is embodied. It's something that takes action, not just something that's felt. So here are some questions I want you to maybe reflect on during the week or even this morning. How will people know the love of God through you this week? And the word how is important. How will people know the love of God through you this week? And then the next question, is there a specific relationship you need to attend to or attend to? Maybe a coworker, maybe a family member, maybe your neighbor, maybe a friend. Is there a specific place where you need to convey the love of God? And then the important question, how are you going to do that? And remember, the Bible doesn't know love as an emotion. It knows love as an action, as a behavior, as a thing we do. 1 John 4, 9, God sent his son. Love people, connect to Jesus, serve the world. Try it again. Love people, connect to Jesus, serve the world. So let's talk about connecting to Jesus. That's the love that happens in us, the love that happens in us. When we talk about connecting to Jesus, what we're talking about is a, a word we haven't shared too much about this summer since I've been here, but it's an important word and it'll become increasingly important. It's the word discipleship. Discipleship is the process through which we help people become more like Jesus. It's the process through which we help people become more like Jesus. Discipleship is important. As a matter of fact, in the life of the church, it is the most important thing that we're called to do. We're going to talk about this in two weeks from today, about the significance of what it means to make disciples and why Jesus commands us to do that kind of work. One of the struggles we have with discipleship is that we often think about discipleship as something that happens in our head. 
So we think of discipleship as information coming to us, listening to a teaching, listening to a Bible study. And what happens in the life of the church and in many churches is they spend a lot of energy and effort talking about discipleship, but do not spend as much time making disciples. Those are different things. So like what you're participating in right now, it's called a sermon. You probably knew that, didn't you? But notice how the sermon's working. Who's talking? I am. I trust, as you're hearing the sermon, that the Holy Spirit is working in each one of you to hear exactly what you need to hear today. And what you need to hear today may be because of something I say, and sometimes it's even in spite of something I say. So the trust relationship is that the Holy Spirit is in you speaking the message that your heart needs to hear today. There's nothing wrong with Bible studies and lectures and sermons and all those things, only if they inform discipleship. But we can never make the mistake of assuming they are discipleship. That I went to church, discipleship. Not exactly. Uh, imagine it this sort of way, that discipleship is really about transformation, not information. It's about transformation. Now, as Methodists, we know a little bit about this in our history. Let me introduce you to one of my friends, John Wesley. John Wesley is the person who started the Methodist movement back in the 19th or 18th century. And what John Wesley did in the early days of Methodism is he order, organized people into small groups together. They were called class meetings. And in those small groups, they would talk about their discipleship together. There was not any teaching that would go on in those groups. Those groups were just for discipleship. So, for example, when the group would gather together, the way Mr. Wesley wrote the rules is rule number one, when they would gather together, the first question they would discuss was this, how is it with your soul? And then everybody would share. You're not going to like the second question. Second question, what sin has overtaken you this week? Do you understand what's going on in these meetings? They're not having a conversation where they're learning about discipleship. What are they doing? They're sharing their life together and helping each other in their discipleship. John Wesley said that that process of doing that was called watching over one another in love. Watching over one another in love. And so when we talk about discipleship as a church, that's what we mean by connect to Jesus. Connect to Jesus is our discipleship. Does that have a starting point? Yes. That starting point is when people give their lives to Jesus Christ. That's the start of that journey. And then we all together spend the rest of our lives working on our discipleship, becoming more like Jesus for the rest of our life until we die. And when we die, we get a turbo boost. And then poof, we're like Jesus. It's a good deal. It's a good deal. Friends, what I'm suggesting is that for us as a church, our focus has got to be increasingly more on how people become more and more like Jesus and helping them do that in their everyday life. Well, how do you do that? Well, it says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 9, the passage we heard read, it said that God gave his only son so that we may live through him. 
It does not say God gave his only son so that we might know stuff through him. It does not say that God gave his only son so that we might be entertained through him. What's it say? Live through him. It's an experience. It's not something we know. It's an experience that's embodied in our life that we might live through God. Even in verse 7, it says that we're born of God, and being born of God results in us knowing God. You probably have taken notice that Jesus didn't call a bunch of theological professionals to be his disciples, right, in the Bible? No. Who did he call to be his disciples? Fishermen. Uh, one guy was a political activist. <laughs> All sorts of people. Blue-collar, ordinary folks became followers of Jesus. And in that process, they changed the world. And this is not to suggest that Jesus has got something against knowledge or having insight or being able to think through things in kind of an academic or theological lens. What it is to say is that what's most important is the process of becoming followers of Jesus Christ, not knowing about that. Those are very different things. So some questions you might want to think about this week. What does connect to Jesus mean to you? And how could you be more connected this week? And perhaps this one, who do you know who needs this connection? Who do you know needs that connection? The work of discipleship is hard work. It's time-consuming work. And oftentimes it's easier to just rely on transferring information because it's just easier for us to do. I would submit to you that the transmission of information without transformation is lazy. That the hard work comes in sitting together in community and saying, how goes it with your soul? How's your heart breaking today? How can we be together for each other? That's what love looks like, is the embodiment of that kind of care and nurture for one another in those spaces. Love people, connect to Jesus. What's the last one? That was demonstrably indecisive. <clears throat> love people, connect to Jesus, serve the world. Now you have convinced me. Good. Serve the world. There's lots of different ways in which we serve the world. Some of that work we do, of course, is in justice making. And this church has a, a great history of doing that kind of work. There's a picture hanging down in Pastor Stephanie's office of a bunch of free Methodists from this church in a parade in the early part of the 19th century rallying for prohibition. Who knew? Today, we have different ways we embody that. Our set-free ministries and fostering hope are coming alongside foster children and foster families throughout the city of Seattle. We have been changing lives to that ministry for decades, and we're going to keep doing that. You, that's justice-making ministry. Oftentimes when we think about justice-making, we think somehow we have to hold a picket sign or do... No. It's the embodiment of loving people and being with them in the midst of their struggle and pain and helping them find hope in their own lives. There's other ways, of course, we do that kind of work of serving the world. The sharing of the gospel, the evangelistic message of Jesus Christ is important. I don't know if you've noticed lately, but we live in a world that's in deeply in pain. 
and it's deeply in pain because of sin. Our brokenness as human beings. And God offers us all redemption and hope in the name of Jesus. One of my favorite theologians that thinks about the church of the mission is this guy. This is Leslie Newbegin. Dr. Newbegin died a good number of years ago. He was a bishop in the Anglican Church in England. And, and Dr. Newbegin describes the work of the church like breathing. So it, the work of the church is drawing and sending. Drawing and sending. Just like breath. You breathe in and you breathe out. And that a church does the same thing. It draws and it sends. It draws and it sends, just like breath. So you can imagine, just like breath, when a church stops drawing, what happens? It dies. And when a church holds its breath and never sends, what happens to it? It also dies. Drawing and sending, that's what it means to be a church. So when we gather together here on on Sunday or maybe watching online during the week and we have this time of worship together, sometimes we think that's the activity we need to go to for a whole variety of reasons. But the best metaphor I could describe this time is by one of my favorite preachers, Barbara Brown Taylor, who says that worshiping is an evicting experience. She's talking about New Begin in the same sort of way, that when we gather together, it's an evicting experience. In other words, when we come together, we should feel the push to be sent out. So if we think about it that way, when we come together for worship, this is halftime. This is the locker room. I'm the coach, and I'm giving you a pep talk for the second half. Thank you. <laughs> See how it works? Drawing, sending. So when we gather together as the community of the church, it's for the purpose of being sent out. This is why we are in the world, friends. This is why we go to work. This is where we go to play. This is where we live our lives because people in all of those places will find the Lord Jesus Christ through us, drawing and sending, drawing people, sending. That's what a church does. It has a healthy pattern of breathing and moving back and forth in that kind of a rhythm. So if you come to church here and you kind of go, you know, they ask for volunteers a lot. Good. We're going to ask more. Because that's the sending. And the sending can take place in all sorts of different places. You might be working in a nonprofit somewhere. You might be working in another space or another context. Even your job where you go for work, maybe tomorrow, is a place where you're sent. Drawing, sending. That's our work as a church. It says in verse 10 of this particular passage of Scripture that God sent his son into the world to be the propitiation for our sins. There's a cool word you can try out at a dinner party this week. Strike up a conversation about propitiation. I double dare you. This is a really difficult word in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10 to translate into English. We don't have a very good English word for this Greek word in the New Testament. It means like a atoning sacrifice or you know, something that had to be done to make things right, you know. 
don't worry about the meaning. I, I don't want to get bogged down in atonement theory. That's not the point. All I want you to get is that when God loved, God sent his son to do what? To do what? To be the atoning sacrifice. You understand that the act of God's love is sacrifice. It's sacrificial. So we're not just talking about action in general. We're talking about sacrificial action. And this is the key, I think, to 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 to 10, where the writer, John, starts off by saying, Brothers and sisters, let us love one another, in verse 7. Now we know what he means by that. Loving one another isn't that we have some feeling for love or some emotion for love, but that we love in action, like we do in fostering hope at this church, like we do in so many other different ways where people can help and serve and be a part of conveying God's love in the world. That's what it means. Sacrificial action on our part. It's not a feeling, friends. It's an action. This is really hard for us in 21st century American culture because love is over-sensationalized. I love that pizza. I love that movie. I had a donut this morning. I love donuts. I could go on. Compounding that even further, love is over-sexualized. So it becomes very difficult for us to have conversations about love without it kind of getting all charred and mingled and burned up in all of those bigger cultural conversations. The Bible is clear that love is not an emotion or a feeling or a sentiment. It is an action that is embodied. Sacrificial action. So uh, one of my favorite things to do is do premarital counseling with, uh, with two people before they're getting married. And so they'll come into my office and they'll sit for the premarital counseling and one of the questions I always ask them is this. I said, um, how do you experience love together? Or a question like it. And almost to a T, the person will start, one of the people in, in the marriage, they'll start off by saying, oh, it's when so-and-so does this for me. They always talk about the love that they share based on what they receive from it. I've only had a handful of times where I've had either person in that couple say, I experience love by giving to my partner or my soon-to-be spouse. See the difference? I've had one time over almost 30 years of ministry where I had both of them talk about love as sacrificial action on the part for the other. That's what love is. I almost cried. They were like, oh, you got it. You got the quiz right. The notion of being in love is the sacrificial action that we take for the sake of the other person. So powerful, so compelling. Do you understand why we need a church? We need a church to help people learn how to do that. Because what we have forgotten in our culture as a whole is how to give love. We certainly know how to take it. But how do we give it? How do we give it sacrificially? How do we give it in a way that we can give it sacrificially and not be abused in that? How can we not be enablers in that? How can we offer ourselves fully and completely? Isn't that what God did? God gave his only begotten, it says, as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Hmm.
One of the things I really enjoy about our church in the short time I've been here is that our vision to love people, connect to Jesus, and serve the world is everywhere. It's on our website. It's in the, uh, you know, any kind of information you've received about our church. We have it on signs out there in the foyer. You know, at this church, you can't even go to the bathroom and escape that sign. And we even have it posted there. Because we want to remind ourselves of the basics. These are the basics. Love people, connect to Jesus, serve the world. In 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 to 10, that's exactly what we read. And we'll see it throughout the scripture over the next few weeks as we talk together in this Back to Basics series. The word used for love in this text is the word agape. Anyone ever heard of this word before? Agape? Its verbal form, its verb form is agapao. And it's one of three different words for love in the New Testament that are used. And there's not as much distinction by the time of the New Testament between these two of the words for love especially. But in all mentions of this word throughout Scripture, and even when this word is used in Greek literature outside of the New Testament, it always refers to actionable affection. It's a love that does something. It just doesn't feel something. And so we as a church are going to be focused on that. How do we do that? How do we grow younger? How do we become more diverse? How do we do all that? And do it while we're breathing. Drawing and sending. So why don't we practice a little drawing and sending right now. I'm going to just invite you to close your eyes for a moment. And I want you to breathe in deeply, as much air as you can possibly breathe in, and hold it just for a half a second, and then exhale fully and completely. And then try it again. Take another deep breath, fully and completely, as much as your lungs can hold, and then exhale fully and completely. Let's do that one last time. Take a deep, deep, deep breath in, and then let's exhale. We thank you, Lord God, for meeting us at this table, at this time, in this moment. For when we speak of your atoning sacrifice, God, we speak of this table and how your body and blood were given for us. So it's out of abundance of thanks. We thank you for your love. We thank you, God, that your love was not just mere sentimentality, but that you did something. You acted for us. You came to us in Jesus Christ. And that through him, him alone, can we have eternal life.